0: How many of you remember this book? <laughs> it's the cat and the hat is back. Um, Adrian did a great job teaching last week, right? And, did. and it seems like every time we teach through one of these chapters, it kind of is a roller coaster of morality and events and feelings as we go through this. You know, there's like this cataclysmic flood. And then Noah gets out of the boat with his family. He starts afresh and new. God has recreated everything in a sense. And even remember, it follows the story of the recreation to the T and the order of creation in Genesis 1. And it's like, oh, man, this is it. This is the opportunity, right? This is we're going to start fresh. And then bad things happen, right? It was like five minutes later. <laughs> and it just keeps escalating from there. And it's like Adrian ended last week with his teaching of saying, I'm sorry, I don't have, you know, Butterflies and roses, kind of, kind of an ending here. But this is how it ends, and that's the reality that we're up against as a, as a people, as humanity, is that we have moments in our history, in the timeline of human history, that are punctuated with increased morality and justice and righteousness, and then we have a steep drop off and a decline in that as well. And then, in addition to that, we have a great increase in our population and our numbers. So it's a, like a vertical uh, relationship of like, morality and justice, and it's a roller coaster ride that way, but also that, that sense of morality or the lack thereof is also span, expanding horizontally as we grow in numbers to what Adrian says, almost eight billion people. And uh, Adrian did some, brought out some really good points, but one of the things that when he was teaching last week, this is, what, this is how simple-minded I am here. This is what I thought of. <laughs> Was the cat in the hat is back. How many of you read this book to your kids, or maybe you read it? Maybe you read it just in your free time? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but the gist of the story is, these kids are left home alone, right? And the mother is like, "Guys, take care of the house, whatever. Don't, you know, don't burn the place down in essence." And, and then what happens is this goofy cat shows up, and they make the big mistake of letting in this weird talking cat. Um, it's a really suspicious cat. And they let it in. (laughs) Sounds a little bit familiar, right? Don't worry, I'm not going to start a teaching series using Dr. Seuss, okay? I'm not going to do that. Um, But they let this cat in, right? And it gets in the bathtub and it has a a cake with like pink icing on the top. And then he like gets out of the bathtub and the kid's like, you got to leave, you got to leave, you got to leave. And um, the story is just weird, right? And then he leaves this pink ring on the freestanding tub in there. And, the, and he's like, oh, my mother is gonna get mad that you got this pink ring on the tub. And so he gets the mother's dress and tries to wipe it up with the dress and it's on the dress. And it keeps expanding, it goes to the walls of the house and it goes to the floor and it goes to this. And he gets thing one and thing two out and they try to help clean it up. And every effort they make to help try to clean this pink stain in the house, what does it do? It gets worse, it gets worse and it gets worse and it it's like, exponentially it gets worse. The pink stain just grows everywhere. Right, And it, you get to the end of the book, towards the end, and it says, come on, kill those spots, kill the mess, yelled the cat, and they jumped at the snow with long rakes and red bats. They put, in, they put it in pails, and they made high pink hills, pink snowmen, pink snowballs, and little pink pills. And it's like, just, that doesn't even fix it. And then finally, at the end, he has to get out this thing, which I don't know why he didn't just get it out after the bath of experience. The, you guys remember the, um, the voom and, it, and finally somehow the voom, they don't even know what it does, but it takes away the pink stain magically. It's like, and then everything's good. And then the mom walks in and just in the nick of time, everybody's gone. All the pink stain's gone. It's like, but humanity has like this pink stain, if you will. It's like this, this analogy of like, that's a problem that we have with sin. And in a, like pinheaded theological terms, that's called total depravity. We are totally depraved. When an infant comes out of a womb, they are totally depraved. They are born into a sin nature and need saving. The salvation of those parents do not do it for the child. They need to have a personal relationship with their savior. But that's kind of, it kind of reminded me of this. Everything we touch, you know, in that sin nature, everything we try to fix, even if we have the best intentions. It just goes to pot really quick, doesn't it? And it's like, man, we just make a big mess of things. And it brings us to Genesis chapter 11. And we get to this part. If you turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis 11. Turn in your Bibles there. Genesis 11. Genesis 11. And it talks about right before this how Noah's family and Noah's having all these descendants and it goes through this genealogy genealogy, and says these were the descendants of Shem according to their families and and language and their lands and their nations and then these were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations and their nations for these are the nations of the earth. They were divided up after the flood. And then it comes to chapter 11. And it says in the original language here, Vayehi Koha'ares," and and behold, all the eretz, all the earth, sephah echas was of one sephah, like a like a, 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 a lip. Literally, it's lips. The echadim, and they had one speech or word or language. So, it uses this differentiates between the sephah and this devar, this this these lips and this language, this speech. Um, the word Safa is actually also the Hebrew word for a, the banks of a river, the banks of a river. And it's like, why do those two, why the lips and banks of a river, what do those have in common? It's because, you know, James says that life and power, life and death are in the power of the tongue. It's like things can come out of these banks of your river that can provide life or they can provide death. Like how many people live near a river and you see their house is what is up on stilts, right? There's a lot of goodness that can come from being near a river. There's a lot of fertility in the, in the soil, right? But then there's also these unexpected floods that happen. And then suddenly everybody has to go up or everybody has to leave the area, right? And that's kind of how it is with people. Sometimes, you know, someone will be saying something and it brings life, it brings encouragement. And then out of nowhere, they're like, whoa, you know, it's death, they speak death. And everyone has to leave. It brings chaos. Life and death are in the power of your speech. It's the essence of a safa, a, a, a lips. But they had, they were unified in that. Now, so far, is this bad? Is this evil? Is this such a bad thing to be unified in speech and in language? They have the same words. No, it's not. It's not intrinsically evil that they have all this in common. You get a lot done, right? You could. You know, how many of you um, have been to another country and there's no one who spoke your language nearby? Or how many of you have had to move from a different country, like a, like Fabian or Carla and, and uh, Faraz And how many... You move from a different country into another one and you have to learn their language. It's a great hurdle to overcome. So it would make sense if the world all had one language. It would be so practical and beneficial, right? It would be so good. But what... Is wrong. We have that cat in the hat stain, don't we? And it says in verse 2 that it came to pass um, that they came and they traveled from the east. In Hebrew, it's mekedim. And the east is always a picture of exile. They're, they're they are leaving exile. Notice God is not bringing them from exile. They're picking up and they're saying, Our exile is over, let's go west. They found a plain in the land of Shinar. Now, the word Shinar is very important words, words packed with meaning. It's, it's a synonym for Babylon, and it's used many times in scripture as a synonym of this region and this city state and this empire that would become called Babylon. But it comes, this word Shinar, it comes from two words. Sha'ar, which means an intense negative emotion or violence. And then it comes from Na'ar. It means to growl or be uh, like young toothed The word sheen in Hebrew is tooth, tooth. It's like the idea of like aggressively showing your teeth and growling like a dog or an animal might growl and show their teeth. This is the land. This is that they named it is the place of intense, intense anger and showing your teeth. Sounds like a a pleasant place, doesn't it? How many of you want to live in a subdivision called Sheen (laughs) R? It's a wonderful place. Imagine the HOA there. <laughs> and they said to one another, they said, come, let's make livnim, bricks. And let's, and it's it literally in Hebrew, it's let's, let's put them under a seraph or seraph. Let, let's burn them. It doesn't use the word fire there. It's let's, let, a seraph, if you remember, is a, is a type of angel, a seraphim, it's a type of angel that's flaming. It's a burning angel. They say, let's, let's burn these bricks. That's Seraph. So they had bricks for building stone and clay for mortar. Now, this word mortar here is the first time we see this ever in, in the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible. And it, the Hebrew word for mortar is chomer. Chomer. Someone guess when's the next time this word might emerge? Exodus. Exodus. Turn with me real fast to Exodus 114. Exodus 114. Exodus 114. Moreover, the uh, no, I'm on the wrong spot. We can back up to verse 12. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied and expanded until the Egyptians came to dread the people of Israel and worked them relentlessly, making their lives bitter with They were digging clay and making bricks and all kinds of field work and toil. And in this way, they were shown no mercy. That word, they're digging clay, is they're making chomer, they're making mortar. So you see, the, the kings of this world. They have this interesting fascination with bricks and mortar, don't they? Now, I, I, I work with bricks and mortar at work. I, sometimes I have to mix up bricks and mortar, and I have to repair walls, like brick walls, using this stuff. It's not inherently evil. I'm not sinning by taking and making mortar and patching walls of, you know, the brick or anything. I'm not doing that. But rather, you're supposed to look at this with a lot of symbolism, that men and rulers of this world, or women... They have this fascination with building physical objects and the tools of the build, the, the tools of the trade are, are what they, you know, they're, they're kind of like um, symptoms of our own personal greed and desire for notoriety. But Pharaoh, you see, Pharaoh uses the people of Israel to do the same thing much later, doesn't he? Verse four, then they, com- then they said, come, let's build ourselves. A city. Now, what do I always say when people either build or go to a city? In the in the Bible, bad things are about to happen, right? And the city will have a migdal. a megdal. Now, that's the that's the same root for the word gadol, gadol, which means great. So they're saying, let's make a a place of greatness, a migdal. a great place, and it's translated as tower. I think that's a good translation, but. Don't get hung up on the fact that it just is a tower. It could, it's just a place that is great. Okay? It's a little bit more ambiguous than that. Now, this, this word is used, if you want to turn with me, to Psalm 61.3. Psalm 61.3. Psalm 61.3. See how else this you this. sixty-one-three. Let me back up one verse. From the end of the earth, with fainting heart, I call out to you. Set me down on a rock far above where I am now, for you have been a refuge for me, a migdal of strength in the face of the foe. I will live in your tent forever and find refuge in the shelter of your wings. For you, God, have heard my vows, and you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You see, this is like a direct affront to the fact that God's name is a strong tower, that God is the Migdal. He is Goddol. So they're saying, let's build a great place, a tall place that has its top reaching into the Shemaim. Now, don't get hung up on the, the idea that they were trying to reach up into the upper parts of the atmosphere either. I think this is probably more hyperbole. They're just trying to build a, many scholars believe this might be like a, like a ziggurat, like this picture there. In the ancient Near Eastern world, in the culture, ziggurats were like a gateway for the gods. where They would go up and they would make sacrifices on the top of ziggurats and it was thought to be, like a way to appease the gods of an ancient Near Eastern world. And we'll see that play out here because they're going to name this tower and this place Babel, which is going to come from the Akkadian word, the gate of God, which is the name that it develops. So top reaching the heaven, why? So that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. Now there is, that's where you're like, uh uh-uh. It's not bad to build bricks. It's not bad to make mortar. Like I I said, I do it at my job. It's not bad to build any kind of great structure. But what is bad? To do so to make a name for yourself, right? And so that we won't be scattered all over the earth. That's the real reason they built the tower. So, now... Watch out for the irony here. True or false? God, the creator of all, is omnipresent. True. Do you hear me? True or false? The creator of the universe is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. True or false? True. But it says here in verse 5 that God, Adonai, came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Did he have to come down? Was it like this was out of his focus and out of his view? He didn't have a strong enough telescope to look? No. What the author is trying to do is to kind of, um, not slander, but um, kind, of, kind of reveal a little bit of irony about this. That, look, you tried to build a tower up to heaven to reach the highest parts of heaven, but even still... God had to do what? Come down. come down. To see it. An omnipresent God still had to come down and be like, what are y'all up to? <laughs> you little, like, peons. You're trying to build, that's cute, you're trying to build a tower, right? And the author is trying to make that, kind of kind of make that irony really tangible to us, right? In verse 6, Adonai said, look. The people are am echad. They're a unified people, one people. And they have a echad Sefa, a unified, like, lips. And, now, this, this translation is hard to pin down. I like this translation right here. He says, see the beginning of all that humans will do. Your translation may have something like, See what they're capable of doing. Or see, see like, they... Um, you guys tell me what translations you have. See what they're starting. See what they're starting. Nothing Howard? Nothing that they plan to do will now be impossible. Nothing that they plan to do will be impossible. Yeah, and I don't really like that translation because it, it doesn't leave it as open-ended as see the beginning of all that they yeah. will do. Yeah. You imagine, like... What's the beginning of all that we will do? It's like, um, I'm getting ahead of myself here. This translation, I think this is from the ESV. Behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they will propose will be impossible. Now that sounds like, you know, we look at this. If we look at this from a secular viewpoint, a humanistic viewpoint. And say, man, God is really rude. We were trying to make some serious advancements in medical science and, and, and technology. And he came down and he scattered our people and he just was like wiped us out. How rude. Why would I want to worship a God like that? Well, yeah, if we all had pure hearts and regenerated hearts, sure, medical breakthroughs and technological breakthroughs are wonderful, aren't they? But the problem is, We all have that stain, don't we? And there's people in this world, I know this might be news to some of you, there are people in this world who would love to get their hands on technological or medical breakthroughs for the exploitation and control of the collective. No, that's not happening. No, there's no way. Really? Have Have you been alive the past two years? Have you been awake the past two to three years? and seeing how medical breakthroughs can control large groups of people. We went from, in the nursing world, in hospitals, we went from like, here's some free donuts to show me your papers in like two months. Here's some free donuts to show me your papers. I just had to write a medical exemption letter for a nurse this week so that he could keep his job in the nursing field. So when we look at it through a biblical worldview, what God is doing is saying, "Uh uh-uh, pump the brakes on what you guys got going on here. And he could see through what we say the corridors of time and see the destructive potential of humanity, couldn't he? I mean, just in the past 100 years, remember I put those numbers up of how many people died just in genocide alone? Not even including famine and, and wars? Just in genocide. Other people saying, they're, we want to kill them because they're of a different race or ideological viewpoint. They don't deserve to live. Hundreds of millions of people. Just in the past 100 years. And I have this up here. If you know your history, that's, that's a survivor of the of the, the bomb, the, the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And I'm not going to get into the moral Components of it was right or wrong to drop a bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima in 1945. But he says, see the beginnings of what humans will do. In a flash of light, hundreds of thousands of people obliterated. And to think now that we have weapons that are tens if not hundreds of times the potency and power of what was dropped on those two cities in 1945. See the beginning of what humans will do. So in essence, what he is doing here is buying us time. He's doing us a favor. And he says, at this rate, nothing they set out to accomplish this is like the word uh, zamam. It means to scheme or to plan, devise. Nothing they zamam will be impossible for them. So come. Now listen for the irony here again. Let's go down. And then let's confuse or balal. It means to like mix up or mingle up their language, their safa. So that they won't shama. Remember, Shema means to like hear and act, right? Each other's sephah. So from there, Adonai scattered. Now, this is the Hebrew word putz. This is, the, this is used throughout the Hebrew Bible when God scatters the people of Israel. He uses this verb putz. He scatters them all over the earth, and then they stopped building the city. For this reason, it is called Babel confusion. Because there, Adonai balal the sephah, the language, the, the, the lips of the whole earth. And from there, Adonai scattered them all over the earth. Now, I believe that Yeshua was speaking about this very story. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14, Luke 14, 28. And I think that this, uh, this parable will make a lot more sense in light of this story. Luke 14, Luke 14, and go to verse 28, Luke fourteen twenty-eight. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Sound familiar? Don't you sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough capital to complete it? If you don't, then when you have laid the foundation but cannot finish it, all the onlookers will start making fun of you and say, this is the man who began to build but couldn't finish. Do You think Yeshua was there during the story? I believe so. He says, come, let's go down, right? Let's confuse their language. Now, like I said, Common speech, common communication, not intrinsically bad things. And I like to look at numbers when I'm looking at these things and say, you know, I wanna know what is the most confused linguistically mixed up, let's say, nation in the world. United, I, I go to, uh, you know, Uganda, for instance, there's like 52 languages spoken in the little country of Uganda, which is maybe half the size of Alabama. 52 languages. To the point that like Annie and Adrian and myself drove north a couple hours one day, and the the locals that were in the car with us could not understand the people of the villages of which we were visiting. Just two hours north. Completely different language. But they could understand English. Most of them could understand English. Well, what's interesting is, um, Papua New Guinea has 839 languages. That makes sense because, you know, they're divided up on little islands in the ocean. And there's a lot of uh, geographical distance and separation and isolation going on there. Uh, Indonesia, 707. Nigeria has 526 languages. India has 454. The United States has 422 languages in it that are represented in the United States. Interesting, right? China has 300, Mexico has 289 different dialects. You know, I I work with a lot of people that have immigrated from Southern Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and um, sometimes the Mexican men who employ them, get, they yell at them for speaking their local dialects to each other. And they say, habla espanol, (laughs) speak Spanish. They're trying to tell, like, they want to understand what they're saying. There's a degree of paranoia between them. So, there's two worlds. There's languages spoken in real life, I-R-L, in real life. And then there's languages used solely on the internet. which language do you think is predominantly used for the internet world? English, English is. English is the most spoken language in the world if you include non-native English speakers okay Chinese Mandarin is the most spoken language if you just include native speakers and then English is a close second but if you include non-native speakers English takes it by a long stretch so what's interesting about that I'm kind of speculating that because English is the language of the internet and then English seems to be the most predominant language in the world that people are learning and speaking. And that's why, guys, if you're an American in the room, you know, you, you go to a country and they say, um, what do you call someone that can speak two languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who can speak three? Bilingual. What do you call someone who speaks one? American, American. you got it, good. <laughs> but the reason, the reason being is that I can go to East Africa. I can go to almost all of Africa and I don't have to learn a new language. They can meet me at my language. And a lot of that has to do with like the British uh, Empire and stuff. I can go to India and Pakistan, and I, don't, I can get around easily in those countries not having to learn another language. It's pretty crazy, right? But that's one of the reasons why native English speakers, they're one of the people groups that rarely learn a new language because it is quickly becoming the language of commerce of the world. Does that make sense? So, I'm going to speculate that English is going to eventually become that language that unites the world just on a linguistic level. And eventually all those other languages will eventually be washed away in a sense if you let it go on. I don't know how long that would take, but I you know, I sit down with people in Uganda and I you know in um in, in Iganga, Uganda, they speak Lasoga, and then they speak English, totally different languages. The old men in Uganda, they speak a lot of Lasoga and very little English, but they speak a little bit of English. The young people, it's reversed. They speak a lot of English and very little Lasoga. So, and they, they don't like that. The old guys don't like that. They say young people, just like in, you go to native, native uh, places here and, and you go to reservations here, um, there is like this push for people living on reservations and, and Indians here in, in, in North America to preserve their language because they know that that's being washed out, their culture is being lost. And language is so vital to one's culture. And Alexander the Great knew that and he said, I don't have to conquer lands, I just have to set up schools of language. If I can set up Hellenistic schools of them learning Latin or Greek, then I've, cha- I've already conquered that place. Because he knows if I change the language, I change the people. And it's so true. Now, I'm not saying that like, English is going to be like the language of you know, the new Tower of Babel. I'm not saying it isn't either. But. <laughs> but what I think we have to be more concerned with than a linguistic uniting of the whole world is probably something along these lines and this is something we're going to confront here and have to decide which side of the aisle we fall on which side of the fence we're going to be on on these kinds of issues there's a guy and i actually really kind of i hold him at arm's length but some of the stuff he says you know is interesting his name is elon musk i of mean, you heard heard elon musk mm-hmm. now like any human being i'm not going to think that he's like savior and everything he says is gospel I'm going to hold him at arm's length and test everything he says and listen to everything he says through the lens of Scripture. But the guy is as equally brilliant as he is dangerous. And he has founded a company called Neuralink. And I just took a screenshot of their website this morning. And it says, create the future with us. Sound familiar? Come, let's build a tower. (laughs) Create a future with us. And I know it's really small, so I'm going to read it right here. Every day we are building better tools. Sound familiar? (laughs) Intended to communicate with the brain. With the right team, the potential applications for this technology are limitless. Uh Uh-oh, that sounds familiar. If you know your Bible, that should throw up some red flags. And of course, there's like some cool looking things here. I have no idea what this is, but it's supposed to invoke confidence in the link. Now this is what he's calling this technology, the link. We are aiming to design a fully implantable, cosmetically invisible brain computer interface to let you control a computer or mobile device anywhere you go. Micron scale threads would be inserted into areas of the brain that control movements. And each thread contains many electrodes and connects them to an implant called the link. Mm. There's more. So here's some, here is the link here. It's a sealed implanted device and it processes and transmits neural signals. And each small and flexible thread contains many electrodes for detecting neural signals. Now, Here's the thing, and Adrian and I were talking about this the other day, and it's like, I, I asked Adrian, did you ever here of Neuralink, you know? And he's like, yeah, it's really interesting. And for those who don't know, under a rock the past couple days, or if you're new here, Adrian was in a helicopter crash last June that limited, greatly limited the use of his legs. And it's like, he and I were talking about it, it's like, man, that technology is, seems incredible. And it seems like it could really benefit me, is what he said, it's Like, seems like, but it's like, man, it is creepy as all get out. Because it's a double edged sword. Because, you know, where there is like this technology and this advancement in medical breakthrough, there's also the potential for someone to take advantage and exploit that, isn't there? And it's like, whoa, what side of the aisle do we fall on that? You know? Here, this is another screenshot of their website Engineering with the Brain working towards improving our lives. And then down at the bottom, for some reason in the lower left-hand corner, it says regaining control. (laughs) So I'm just looking, I'm looking at this as both sides of the coin could do a lot of good for human beings. But for those who don't um, serve the collective or benefit the collective in any way, all we have to do is hit a couple buttons and we power you off. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Regaining control, right? And that's the essence of Babylon. It's this system that veils itself as glorious and great. And as the idea of Babylon in the physical, geolo- ge- geographic, geopolitical, there's the word I'm looking for, the the physical geopolitical place called Babylon grows in influence and size. We're going to see it reemerge time and time again in the Bible. And it's going to become a vehicle of punishment and discipline against the people of Israel eventually in the year 586 B.C. Babylon's going to come into Judah and take Judah captive. And Judah is going to be moved into Babylon, east. So it became this symbol of prosperity. And remember, the book of Daniel is probably the height of this empire under Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon, right? Babylon the Great. But we see the concept of Babylon begin to morph into a metaphorical one through Scripture where it's not strictly a geopolitical place on the map, but rather becomes a thought process or a system of human exploitation and control and sin, right? And it's, it's used, you know, if you look at Acts chapter 2 in a new light here, and that is God saying, I've brought you to a new tower that is used to honor me, that is the temple in Jerusalem. And now I will once again interact with your sephah, your speech, and I will begin the, I will begin to undo what was done. Let's go there real quick and read a little bit. We're not gonna read all of Acts two, but I want you to see the reversal of Babylon happening in Acts chapter two. Remember we left off, everyone was scattered. In Acts 2 verse 3, they saw what looked like tongues of fire which separated and came to rest on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different glossa, as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Now they were staying in Yerushalayim, religious Jews, from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd gathered and they were confused. Sound familiar? When was the last time there was a big group of people confused, right? Because each one, but it's for a different reason this time, heard the believers speaking in his own dialecto, uh, language. Totally amazed. They asked, how is this possible? Aren't these people who are speaking from the Galilee? How is it that we hear them speaking in our own native dialecto? We are like Parthians, and they go on to list, all the countries. How is it that we hear them speaking in our own glossa about the great things that God has done? You see, God interacts with our language from time to time, but he does it on his terms. When he's ready to start the movement and the going out of the gospel of the kingdom, he's okay, I'm going to begin the reversal of Babylon. And you know, my Holy Spirit is going to dwell in people and allow them supernaturally to speak in other languages so that I can then cross that linguistic barrier, that creative bridge in a gap that I myself created. I'm going to supernaturally cross that gap now and allow them to share the gospel with each other. But Babylon continues to be developed. Like I said, Babylon is probably derived from the Akkadian word, which means the gate of God. Now, anytime we try to create a gate for God or a gate for the gods, bad things will happen. Now, do you know the gates of Babylon were actually uncovered? You know that? They actually uncovered the the real gates of Babylon in Iraq. And they were moved to uh, the the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. Have any of you ever been to the Pergamum Museum? Nobody has? Okay. Um, I haven't either. But um, yeah, Hitler had a really intense fascination with these ancient shrines, and uh, and, and altars, and temples. He would send German archaeologists out into the ancient world in the Middle East, and they would uncover these things like the gates of Babylon or Pergamum, the seat of Satan, and they would deconstruct them and then reconstruct them in Berlin. Um, there's photos you can see, you know, during the bombing campaigns over Berlin during World War II, the allies were bombing, carpet bombing the city of Berlin to try to knock out their, their industri- industries and their morale. Um, you can look up photos. They, they took uh, sandbags and filled them up and stacked them around the gates of Babylon. So that if allied bombs fall through the roof into the Pergamum Museum, that the gates of Babylon would be protected. Which happened. Bombs fell through the Pergamon Museum and almost just completely destroyed it. But all of those old relics were preserved. Just is interesting. Um, they took like like bound up cardboard and paper and, and wrapped them all around those old relics and stuff. Go with me to, well, we don't have to go there. First Peter 5.13. Peter is going to use this metaphor of Babylon. And he's actually saying, you who are in Babylon... Chosen with you, sends you, you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. What Peter is saying is that, I'm, you, I know you're not living, that the empire of Babylon has long since collapsed, but he's picking up on and continuing this idea that Babylon is now like a metaphor. It's a system, it's a metaphysical system and thought process that is going to exploit human beings for gain either monetary gain or control. And and boys and girls, for people that can get all the money that that you can ever fathom, you think of some of the richest people in the world, they have everything at their fingertips. When money no longer does it for those people, because they've got it all, they got more money they can spend in a day or in a lifetime. When money no longer does it for them, what does? Power and control, power and control. And the ultimate power and control is dictating who gets to live and who doesn't, playing God. So be on the lookout for that. Now let's go to Revelation 18. And we'll see how the seeds of Babylon will continue to grow in a metaphysical and metaphorical sense. Revelation 18. And John says, After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had a great authority, and the earth was split up by his, lit up by his splendor. And he cried out in a strong voice, She has fallen, she has fallen, Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons, a prison for every unclean spirit, a prison for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of her wine, of God's fury caused by her whoring. Yes, the kings of the earth went whoring with her. And from her unrestrained love of luxury, the world's businessmen have grown rich. Then I heard another voice out of heaven say, my people come out of her so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not be infected by her plagues. For her sins are sticky mass piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Now, this was written in a time, two, uh, I think 3,500 years, give or take, since the collapse of the Babylonian Empire. And John is saying, come out of her, my people. He says, render to her as she has rendered to others. Pay her back double for what she has done. Use the cup in which she has brewed to brew her double-sized drink. Give her as much torment and sorrow for the glory and luxury she gave herself. For in her heart, she says, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in a single day, death and sorrow and famine, and she will be burned with fire because Adonai God, her judge, is mighty. And the kings of the earth who went whoring with her and shared her luxury will sob and wail over her when they see the smoke as she burns. Standing at a distance for fear of her torment, they will say, oh no, the great city, Babel, the mighty city in a single hour your judgment has come and the world's businessmen weep and mourn over her because no one is buying their merchandise anymore stocks of gold and silver gems and pearls fine linen and purple silk and scarlet all rare woods all ivory goods all kinds of things made of scented wood brass iron and marble cinnamon cardamom incense myrrh frankincense wine oil flour grain cattle sheep horses and chariots and bodies and people's souls, the fruits you lusted for with all your heart have, have gone. All the luxury and flashiness have been destroyed never to return. And the sellers of these things who got rich from her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and mourning and saying, oh no, the great city used to wear fine linen, purple and scarlet. She glittered with gold, precious stones and pearls, such great wealth in a single hour Is gone. So, is Babylon alive today? Absolutely, it is. Now, I'm not talking a geopolitical nation state or a city, but the seeds of Babylon have continued to grow and grow and grow. And one day they will be confronted by the power and the victory of God, and they will be judged. But before then, John says, the angel speaking to John says, come out of her, my people. Now, where do you find Babylon is the question, right? How do I know if I'm in Babylon? Babylon has many different faces, right? We see here it's about commercialism and luxury and sexual desires and exploitation of people and souls. And I say, you know, maybe say a daily simple prayer help me come out of Babylon. Because Babylon may have its tentacles around you and you don't realize it. But come out of her so you don't share in her sins. Now there's some key things we can look for in Babylon. The the king it's kind of a tale of two kingdoms. It's like Babylon expects unwilling compliance and generational enslavement. You're forced into Babylon. Whereas the kingdom of heaven invites only willful compliance and individual commitments. Babylon uses deception to gain servitude and loyalty, right? Whereas the kingdom of heaven is open and transparent. It's non-coercive. It's voluntary. The kingdom of Babylon has a focus on self and the denial of others for personal gain. Whereas the kingdom of heaven says, I want to focus on on denying myself for the personal welfare of others. Babylon says dominance and power, right? Get more of that. Whereas the kingdom of heaven says, serve and surrender. Kingdom of Babylon says, let's make a name for ourselves. Where the kingdom of God says, let's sanctify God's name. The kingdom of Babylon says totalitarianism It it presents totalitarianism, which totalitarianism is total control of humanity, total control of someone. It's totalitarianism veiled in self-sovereignty and collectivism. You can be your own God. You can make your own way. Follow your dreams. Follow your heart, right? And then you wake up one morning and you're enslaved to something. Whereas the kingdom of heaven... Says, be self reliant with communal contributions and all under God's sovereignty. You recognize God is sovereign and we need each other. Right? And we talked about, Adrian talked about last week how we don't have an overpopulation problem, we have an overcrowding problem. And I don't think it's sinful to live in a city. I live in, a, I live in the city of everything within the city limits but there tends to be over time as people move and urbanize, there, there is also this proportional relationship with how self-sufficient they are. And the less self-sufficient you are, the higher likelihood of someone making you self-sufficient on them or, or, or reliant on them. And that's dangerous because we've learned through history The leaders of this world tend to become corrupted. And then they exploit the people who are reliant upon them. So just something to be cognizant of. Be on the lookout for the signs of Babylon in our city, the signs of Babylon in our families, in our homes, in our Internet usage, in our bank accounts. Be on the lookout for Babylon. Withdraw from her. Guard yourself from it. Don't share in her sins and eagerly wait our redemption, right? But we'll continue to follow the story of Babylon as we go through the Hebrew Bible. But let me read something as we're closing out here and ask this question. Is a united hum- humanity such a bad thing? <laughs> is a united humanity good if there is no just king? Yeah, let me read a little bit to you real quick and before we wrap up. This is a commentary. It says, God comes down to inspect the scenario in verse five, not to inspect it, but to thwart it. His method is perhaps surprising. He will confuse the language. Why not simply topple the tower? Because that would solve the problem only temporarily. Towers, after all, are replaceable. The solution must go deeper than that. It is not the tower that must be done away with, but what makes possible the building of that tower, an international language that provides communication among linguistic groups. If this ability to communicate is removed, it is unlikely that the individuals will continue their work. Needless to say, knowing more than one's own language is a more than one's own language is a virtue. But the Torah is making a rather audacious point. The world would not be better. If people abandon all languages but one, it is very tempting to seek a united world, one language and one governing authority with no divisive national identities But God declares such a world dangerous. For one thing, it is inevitable. It is inevitably concentrates power in the hands of a few who run that united world and power corrupts for another diverse national identities and cultures are a good thing. The united world the Torah seeks is a world of nations united and acknowledging the one true God and living according to his moral code. Beyond that, diversity in national identity, language, and even religion is welcome. Regarding the latter, a world in which all people are members of the religion. Rather, the Torah wants all people to be ethical monotheists people who acknowledge the one God of the Torah and live by his moral demands. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, God is God of all humanity, but between Babel and the end of days, no single faith is the faith of all humanity. Virtually every call for unity in this day and age is disingenuous. People who call for ideological unity do so on the presumption that it will be based on their values. When a Christian calls for Christian unity, he is calling for a unity based on his understanding of Christianity. Protestants who call for Christian unity are hardly willing to accept the Catholic Pope or sacraments, and Catholics who call for Christian unity are hardly willing to give up the uh, the uh, the Pope or the sacraments. (laughs) Likewise, Orthodox Jews who call for Jewish unity, assume it means all Jews embracing their particular halacha, or Jewish law. And few non-Orthodox Jews who call for Jewish unity are willing to embrace most, let alone all, of various halacha. The founders of the United States, the freest country ever to exist, understood the limitations of unity, perhaps because their values were so deeply rooted in the Bible. And that is why they gave the states of the United States so much power. According to the U.S. Constitution and the 10th Amendment, unless a power is specifically given to the federal government, all powers belong to the states. It says the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. End quote. So, too, the Constitution gave the United States Senate much more power than it gave the nation's populations. States with very small populations have senators, which too, as states with enormous populations. And the Torah never calls for all the world's people to unite as Jews, only rather as followers of God's Torah. That's from uh, Dennis Prager's Rational Bible, his commentary on Genesis. But yeah, the, the world is not a better place if it is united but devoid of a just king. The gospel, however, presents that unity and that united kingdom with our just king. Amen? And with that, let's, um, let's close in prayer, and we'll do about five minutes of, of Q&A. Abba, Father, I thank you for your Shabbat, and I thank you for everyone gathered in this room who came to honor and to worship and to praise your holy name. And, Father, we... Um, We pray for our refinement as a people. We pray that you would reveal in us areas that are displeasing to you. Places of sin, strongholds of sin in our lives. Father, that you would allow that to come to the surface and be confronted. That you would be merciful with us once that happens. That you would show us grace. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room that has yet to develop a personal relationship with our Lord and Savior Yeshua of Nazareth that they would do so today. And they would confront that stain on them, their sin nature, their depravity, and their need for salvation. We thank you for your word that was preserved for us up until this day so we could study and learn and see that there is nothing new. Father, may we continue to worship you today through the breaking of bread, through fellowship. And may you give us opportunities to share your gospel, to share the good news of the just King and his victory over the stain, his victory over the grave. We pray this in his matchless and beautiful name. Amen.